Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. This morning our sermon is from the book of Zechariah. And I think, um, I don't think, I know, before I get into it proper, I have to give you some explanation of the context. It's a little confusing for me whenever you talk about this age in the history of Israel because so many things happen over so many hundreds of years and they're connected like pieces of a puzzle. You can draw lines or run strings to them, but they get a little confusing. And so I'm going to try to give you some context to understand it. Uh, And I don't know that I'll do it in the right order, but try to stay with me, okay? So first you have Solomon who's the king, and he builds the temple right after David. David's son Solomon builds a magnificent temple, but his sin results in the splitting of the kingdom to to, uh, two pieces, the northern and the southern, which is essentially Judah and Jerusalem, okay? Northern and southern. Those two kingdoms keep going along until the northern kingdom Uh, Well, initially, the northern kingdom pulls away from the southern. They want their own worship. They're afraid they're not going to be able to worship with the people in Jerusalem. So they start the northern worship, which is kind of like Judaism, but it's also, it's syncretized with a bunch of idolatry and all these other kinds of things. So it's a mess up there. The north is having trouble. They're in a mess, right? And the south is having the continued worship at the temple that Solomon built. Eventually, God's... uh, uh, God's had enough of the north. And he, he takes them and he destroys them and he takes them off into exile. And then sometime later, God has enough of the south because of their sin and wickedness. And he destroys them, he destroys Solomon's temple, and he takes those people off into exile. You with me still? Everybody there? Stephen, you're, late. you're only raising the Spock eye. Are you with me? Okay, so you guys know Stephen has a Spock eye? Okay. And so they're hauled off uh, as well. And Jerusalem sits there a mess with a few people hanging out. The northern kingdom sits there a mess with a few people hanging out. Everybody's off into exile. God says, Judah, you'll be in exile for 70 years. And that 70 years is coming to an end with where we're going to be looking today. So there's two things to remember about where we're looking today, the the end of that 70 years of of the southern kingdom's exile. One is the book of Zechariah that we're going to be looking at. The other are the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which deal with the same time, but in different perspectives. Zechariah is a prophecy embedded with the people as they're there returning from the exile. Ezra and Nehemiah is talking, uh, that prophecy is designed to help those people in the difficulty that they're in with visions from God about that time and about their work. Ezra and Nehemiah is about more about the practical workings of what happens, what is actually said to the people, what's actually happened, what it's like to be returning to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And so if you want to talk about the temple for a minute, okay, I know, this is a lot of stuff. I wish there was an easy chart, right? 
So you have the Temple of Solomon, which is destroyed, and then they go into exile for 70 years, and then there's a first group that's talked about in Ezra chapters 1 to 6, I believe, that are coming back to rebuild the temple. That's their job, to rebuild the temple. A first wave of exiles returning to Jerusalem. This temple that they're going to rebuild is going to be another place where sacrifices can be made and God's people can come and worship, but it's not going to be as splendid as Solomon's temple. It's going to be much more modest. And it's going to be built not in the thriving economy of Solomon where, where silver wasn't worth anything. It's going to be built in pressure with opposition all around them, right? So you have Solomon's temple, then you have this temple that's going to be built And then finally, some people say it's still the same temple. Some people say it's a third temple. You have Herod's temple. And what Herod does is he builds a temple. He kind of, um, he kind of does a uh, complete rebuild of this temple. And it's splendid again. And that's the temple where Jesus was, where he saw, where he talked about tear down this and I'll rebuild and And that's the temple that in 70 AD was completely raised with the sacking of Jerusalem, okay? Everybody with me? Two or three temples, right? We're dealing with the one that's in the middle or the seed to what Herod would build later over it, with it. I don't know how how that was uh, designed. And so... That's Ezra 1 to 6. Ezra 7 to 10 is where Ezra go back. So the first thing you have is the building of the temple, the rebuilding of the temple. Then Ezra comes back in the balance of the book of Ezra, and he is preaching to the people, and it's essentially rebuilding the commitments of the people to their life as servants of God. So that's when he's telling them, you got to get rid of your, your idolatrous foreign wives, right? Everybody remember that place? And then you have the book of Nehemiah, and that's the rebuilding of the wall. This is oversimplistic. All of them have to do with spiritual things too, I know, but you get the idea. Ezra, first part, Ezra, second part, and then Nehemiah. And those are the three uh, groups of people who move back to Jerusalem. The first group goes back to rebuild the temple, and that's Zerubbabel and Joshua. The second group move back, and that's Ezra to rebuild the people spiritually, and then the third group comes back to rebuild the wall, and that's in Nehemiah. Everybody with me? Zechariah marks the ending of the 70-year captivity of God's people in Babylon, and he's used by God to encourage this little group as they're trying to get established in Jerusalem. And in Ezra chapter 3, it talks about the sacrifices being restarted by this little group of people. Joshua, they, they actually built an altar, and this little group of people started the sacrifices, and they actually laid the foundation of the temple that they were going to build. And it says that there was shouting and happiness in Ezra chapter 3. As, they, as people saw the foundation be laid, 
shouting and happiness, but it also says that there was a whole lot of crying. And it says that the crying had to do with the ancient folk crying because they remembered Solomon's temple. I don't know if it was that they, that they knew that Solomon's temple was, was so much more splendid than this temple was going to be, or, and if they were just overjoyed at the, at the rebuilding of a place of worship. We don't know the answer, but we do know that they had remembered Solomon's temple because it says so in the text, okay? And this was happening with constant opposition in an environment that was difficult, and so God sent Zechariah to help the people. In the first two chapters of Zechariah, God is calling the people to return to, his, uh, to return to him, and he's telling them that their time of discipline, the 70 years, has ended. Now, 70 years, how many of you have children? Anybody ever give your children a 70-year timeout? How many of you kids have ever had to sit for 70 years in a chair, in a corner, right? No. Listen, God doesn't operate to do the things that we will, nor does he operate to do it under our timetable. And the fact of the matter is, in order to accomplish righteousness and justice, God had to, by his own understanding, which is perfect, had to send Israel away, had to send these people away for 70 years, right? So you had people coming back, and some of them were ancient, and some of them had never seen. They came back to a place that was hostile. They had never seen the temple. They'd never been to Jerusalem. They were only coming because of a hope of something that they had no idea. They didn't have a past history. They don't remember the good old days. They're just having a hope that something that they've heard about could be reestablished and that they could again worship the God of their fathers. So with that, let's read Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua. Now remember, Zechariah is bringing prophecies and visions that are encouraging to those people. It's not going to describe all of the on-the-ground things that are happening. It's describing the, the heavenly realities often of what's happening on the ground, whereas Ezra and Nehemiah are describing the on-the-ground realities, okay? Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house and also have charge of my courts. And I will grant you free access among these who are standing here. Now listen, Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed, they are men who are a symbol. 
And for behold, I am going to bring my servant the branch. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua, on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In this vision, we have the accomplishing in heaven what will be released on earth. And in this scene, the prophet is shown Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord with Satan there, accusing him. Joshua is representing the people. And the text says that he is filthy. His clothing is filthy. Now this filth is the sin, the iniquity of the people and also of Joshua. The sins of the people are presented before the angel of the Lord. Now the angel of the Lord in the, in the Old Testament is understood to be, when it's said in that way, it's understood to be a pre-incarnate uh, uh, presence of the person of Christ, okay? And so we look at this, and typically we understand when it says the angel of the Lord, it's talking about Christ present before his incarnation. And Satan is there in his role as accuser. We can, acu- we can assume, it doesn't say, we can assume that the accusations are focused on the state of Joshua's clothing. Look at him. He's filthy with sin. Reject and damn him with all he represents. You can assume that's the kind of thing that Satan is saying to, to uh, the angel of the Lord as he's, as he's accusing. John Calvin says that when it comes to the rebuilding of this temple and the restoration of God's people, Satan turned every stone and tried every experiment to make void the favor of God. Did everything he can to void the favor of God. Satan had many followers there who played the role of accusers. Joshua and Zerubbabel were opposed by the peoples of the land, leftover peoples from the northern kingdoms. Remember I said that after Solomon, the kingdom was split. And that northern kingdom was also taken away into exile, but there were leftovers there, just like there were leftovers in Jerusalem, okay? And when these people came back from exile to rebuild the temple, the leftovers of the northern kingdom came down, and those leftovers became their oppressors, or a good part of their oppressors, okay? They were afflicting them. They were trying to say, no, let us us influence your worship. And Zerubbabel and Joshua said, no, no, you won't have any part with us. And so these people started to oppose them and hate them, And they started uh, 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 discouraging them, it says, frightening them, tricking them with bad counsel, sending nasty letters to the king of Persia. So there was a lot of opposition from the surrounding peoples. You got a group of people, they're in a city with no wall, that's rubble. They've returned, they're trying to establish themselves, they build an altar, They lay a foundation for a temple, they celebrate, they cry, and all of this opposition around them, hating them at the same time. Now remember, contextually, that northern kingdom that opposed them 
as they were trying to rebuild this, that was the northern kingdom following the reign of Solomon, right? That northern kingdom just keeps going on down through history. What does it become later? What would we understand that northern kingdom to become later in the New Testament? What, what are they referred to as? Do you know? They are the Samaritans. And so you can see that the Jews were hostile to the Samaritans. Anybody remember the text? You can see Jesus using the Samaritan as an example in the Good Samaritan, him talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, right? And the hostility that was felt between them. But you see, this hostility wasn't new. It had gone back a long time, a long time. And Jesus said to the Samaritan woman exactly what Zerubbabel said to those Northern Kingdom people who were coming over. She said, uh, we, we worship at this mountain. And Jesus said, you're wrong. And Northern Kingdom people came in at Zerubbabel's time and said, hey, we want you to join with us. We want to join with you and let's all get together. And they said, no. Salvation is here. God's people are to worship here. This is the epicenter. And you can't have a part in it. Okay? So they had a lot of opposition. A lot of opposition. I want you to take note of something. It may be, uh, it may be helpful for you to think about Satan as not simply opposing you. At this point, I'm not really coming to our application yet, but I do want you to consider that. As you think about this uh, situation and the presence of Satan in this, in this gathering in heaven, I want you to consider that Satan doesn't simply oppose God's people. He opposes God by opposing God's people. Do you follow that? He is opposed to God, and therefore he is opposed to you. Now that's helpful for me. Is it helpful for you? Because that's helpful for me because I'm standing under the protection and care of God. Satan may assail me, his slaves may come and assail me, but I stand with God who he opposes. And God is the one who can say things like, the Lord rebuke you. And that's the end of the matter, right? So we'll get back to that a little bit later, but I want to put that in there because here we have the picture now of the, of the room and the presence. So verse 2, the Lord says, The Lord rebuke you, Satan, and indeed the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Satan is silenced. He's silenced. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? That rebuke of the Lord rebuke you, Satan, is used twice in Scripture the other one is the book of Jude, where it says Michael is contesting over the body of Moses. And the same reality was true. God here is contesting with Satan over Joshua. And God says, the Lord rebuke you. He's mine. I have chosen him. And Michael the archangel says to Satan over the body of Moses, the Lord rebuke you. He is God's you may not have him. Now that context is to teach us about not reviling against authorities, not even reviling against authorities like Satan, who has some authority, right? But it nevertheless shows that God has authority over Satan and that God has his people well held, 
right? And he had Joshua well held. And so Satan is accusing and seeking rights over Joshua, but he receives a rebuke. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now, does God argue? Does the angel of the Lord argue with Satan and say, no, he's not sinful? Does he say your accusations are untrue? No. He just says, he belongs to me. I have chosen him, and therefore he is off limits. And then God makes provision for Joshua to be cleaned up. So he spoke with those who were standing and says, remove the filthy garments from him. And he says, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. Now this is weird if you're reading this and preparing for a sermon, you suddenly have this realization that it's talking as if it's the, the person of the prophet. Suddenly in the room, the angel of the Lord is speaking and suddenly the prophet speaks up and says, put a turban on his head, right? And you think, that's weird. Usually the prophet doesn't do anything but ask questions in these kinds of things, right? Um, or fall on the ground, scared to death. Well, old guys like Calvin and Henry say that it was the prophet who spoke, but he said it in a beseeching way. Put a, put a, a clean turban on his head, as if he were imploring. Other people think that it was, it's just a, a wrong way to interpret the verse, and it actually is a continuation of the angel of the Lord. It doesn't matter to me. What matters is they put a clean turban on his head. And that was like the clothing symbolized his clean, the washing of his iniquity. So the tur turban symbolized the authority that he had as the priest of God's people, okay? And so here you have Joshua now standing, uh, still silent. Joshua doesn't say much in this whole exchange, right? He's standing and he's looking very, very different. And the Lord admonishes him and he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house and also have charge of my courts. And I will grant you free access among these who are standing here. Now, this is God's way of telling Joshua that what he is being cleaned up for and called to is to be God's servant, God's witness, a testimony to the glory of God. This is what the church has always been. We are a testimony to the glory of God. And so he is admonished and reminded of that. And so John Calvin says, uh, as Satan in all ages has abused the high eulogies by which God commends his church, this exhortation, now briefly given by the prophet, ought, ought always to be added. For it is not God's will to extol men, that he himself might be as a private individual and give up his own place and degree, but that the whole excellency bestowed on the church is intended for this purpose, 
that God may be purely worshipped and that all, not only the people, but also the priest, may submit to his authority. Whatever glory then belongs to the church, God would have it all to be subservient to his purpose, so that he alone may be supreme, and that rightly. And so, and so Joshua is admonished. What you're going to do is in service to God. You better do it right. You better behave yourself. You better act as I've, as I've cleaned you and chosen you to act. You better act in that way because my glory is at stake. And then he goes on and he says, uh, I'm going to bring my servant the branch. Now this is from Isaiah 11. We always talk about the branch when? At Christmas. And it's, it, it's kind of a strange thing, but Isaiah is prophesying that God will send a branch from the root of Jesse. And the branch is representative of the priesthood. And so in one sense, there is a fulfillment here with Joshua. God is presenting the branch. In another sense, there is an ultimate fulfillment of the branch in Jesus Christ, our high priest. We'll get to that later. But you understand what it's happening here. God says, I'm sending my servant the branch. This is a fulfillment of the prophecy. A partial fulfillment. There's going to be a real mega fulfillment coming later, right? Then the Lord promises a removal of iniquity in one day. He says, I'll set a stone down. Now, this is interesting. It, I had, it was actually my, my uh, epiphany. The light bulb went off in reading commentary at this because uh, I'm reading about this stone, and I thought, why a stone? And what's the deal with the stone, right? And maybe you see it all, obviously, already. But the fact of the matter is, it makes perfect sense. What are the people doing as they're rebuilding the temple? Are they using dimensional lumber from Menards? No. They're gathering and laying stones. And this is God saying, you guys are doing something down there, but I want you to understand that I have a bigger purpose. I'm participating in this, and I'm laying a stone. And this stone is the direct connection to my oversight of everything that's going on here. Okay? And so this stone, again, we'll get to later, it's, it's fulfilled most especially in Christ. God is building the structure. There's something going on that God is doing. And then lastly, uh, in the chapter, it says, In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. He said, I will bless you. There's this time coming. I am reestablishing you. You're going to have good times. Remember, he's speaking to a bunch of people who are mostly quivering every morning as they look out, thinking about the people that hate them and, and the difficulty that they're facing, right? You're going to have good times because of your service to me and because of what I will do for you. You're going to have good times under the vine and under the fig tree. And Joshua stands there and is silent. Now, at this point... I want us to start thinking about us. Because right now, this has all been about Joshua, pretty much, right? And I want us to think about the realities that are uh, embedded 
in this text that actually apply to us and that God brought to pass in our lives and through the work of Jesus Christ. So the first question is, have you ever been accused by Satan? Have you ever been accused by Satan? Okay, I, nobody raised their hand in the first service either because I, th- I think you all thought it was a, cr- they thought it was a trick question. And so I can help you with the answer. If you've never been accused by Satan, you can't belong to God. Have you ever been accused by Satan? Okay. <laughs> Why does that make it so much easier? I don't know. Well, Satan is an accuser, and he accuses us. And so we are constantly mocked. We are constantly accused. We are talked about as having antiquated beliefs and narrow-minded morals. Have you ever been accused by Satan? Okay? We're accused by Satan not by his presence standing in front of us, but by his slaves and his minions all around us telling us that this is true. People in bondage to Satan will accuse us and accuse us just as those people in Jerusalem stood around and accused God's people as they rebuilt the temple. But we're not only accused about things that aren't our fault, where we're faithful to believe in God, in our actions and our, and, our, and our trust, our faith, we're also accused at those points where we're not faithful. And like Joshua, we stand with filthy garments because we have sin. And so we're accused by, by Satan and accused by those around us who are slaves of Satan of having sin. And what are we going to say? Because we do have sin. Well, we might decide we don't want to say we have sin. And so in that point, we'll say, no, no, not me. Those are those other people that have sin. And then we read 1 John and we find out that if we say we don't have no, no sin, we're, we're deceiving ourselves, right? And so that's a problem. That's a, that's, a, that's, an end, that's a dead end. Oh, I don't have sin. Dead end. Okay. So the other option is, okay, we, we, we acknowledge that we have sin, which we must do. Then we have something else to deal with. And that is, do we agree with Satan that we have sin? Now, this is a little tricky, but I want you to follow it. Because I want to tell you that I don't want you to agree with Satan that you have sin. Because then your focus is on the accuser, and what is his ultimate goal for you? At the very least, it's despair, and at the very most, it's damnation. Satan doesn't have any good good ideas for you uh, in, in your future, okay? Neither do any of his slaves. So if you're going to agree with somebody about your sin, it shouldn't be Satan. Who do you agree with about your sin? Well, you agree with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit comes to convict us of sin. And we can agree with him because he won't then tell us that there's no hope. What he'll do is say, what? Plead Jesus. Plead Jesus. You see, Satan's slaves can never agree with the Holy Spirit and then plead Jesus. They will often agree with Satan about us and condemn us, but they don't have a place to plead Jesus 
Okay, you following this? You're having difficulty. You're starting to think about your sin. Your, your conscience smites you. And then you get opposition saying, yeah, there you are. You're no good. What do you do? Do you agree with the slaves of Satan? There isn't a direction to go there. Do you understand? There's no place to go. There's no life, no hope for you. It's not that you're denying your sin. It's just you're saying, I'm not going to agree with you. I'm going to agree with somebody about it that can do something. And so you agree with the Holy Spirit. And then you plead Jesus. Now, if... uh, You guys know the spiritual, give me Jesus. Anybody ever heard that, give me Jesus? Right. I tried to find a, a, a version of it sung by somebody, Jody Phil. Can we do this somehow? The problem is you have to be, uh, I think you have to be, you have to be someone crushed under the bondage of oppression in order to sing that song so that, it has any, so that it's accurate. Everybody I see, see singing it, they're all like up at the, covered microphone and the choirs are all and it's completely devoid of reality when in the morning when I rise give me Jesus plead when I'm afraid give me Jesus when I come to die it's a beautiful song simple right but I'm not sure it can be recorded, Jody. Maybe it can only be sung out in a field with a hoe and a backpack. I don't know what. A burden of some sort, right? Satan's slaves are willing to agree with Satan against God's people. They cannot agree with God against themselves and plead Christ. God's people must agree with God against ourselves and plead Christ. Don't listen to Satan to be convicted of sin. He knows your sins, but his objective is your damnation, or at the very least, your despair. Look and listen to the Holy Spirit for conviction of sin. His objective is your repentance and eternal life. He loves you. He comes from God to love you. Just as with Joshua, Satan is silenced. In our case, Satan is silenced. He, can, he, he uh, accuses us. And Jesus says, how is Satan silenced with Joshua? I have chosen Jerusalem. How is Satan silenced with us? Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. That you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask in the Father in my name, he will give it to you. We, like Joshua, have been chosen by God. And even with the slaves of Satan's words still ringing in our ears, we can say, no, and put in front of ourselves the shield of faith to quench the fiery darts, as Ephesians says, right? No, I have been chosen. The blood of Jesus covers me. I'll agree with God about my sin because he'll save me. I won't agree with you. Okay? You with me? 
Like Joshua, we're washed. His clothes were taken, symbolic of his washing. But in 1 Corinthians, it says, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. We said it this morning, it's the most difficult part of the Heidelberg to say, uh, as if I had never had. And I always get tripped up on that, right? It's like my tongue, who was writing this, right? But it's absolutely true. As if I had never had. We're washed as if we had never had. Like Joshua, we're admonished to live and to be uh, the witnesses of God. We're to live differently because we've been chosen, we've been washed, we're to live differently. If you look at Colossians 3, you've been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Put on love, which is a bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, for you are called to one body. Be thankful. This is, all of this is admonishment, and it's not the only one in the New Testament. There's all kinds of them that are saying, this is, this is about your witness to what God has done. He's chosen you. He has washed you. Live like that in his power. Like Jerusalem now, we have a high priest. The branch has come. The eternal, the consummate branch has arrived. Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands. Christ didn't go into that temple that they were building, that Zerubbabel was building. He didn't go into that in his, in his work to deliver us from evil. He went into the heavenly temple, that that temple was just a shadow, a copy of. And he accomplished once for all the redemption of our, from our sins. Didn't have to do it over and over again. One time. One time. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. But he did not ever sin. And therefore, he was able to pay the, the, the price of our sins. And we can come to the throne of grace with confidence and find mercy and grace in time of need because of Jesus Christ. He exists eternally as that branch, as that high priest eternally in front of us. And God removed the sins of his people in one day through the living stone that is Christ, just like it says in Joshua. In one day, in one day, God lays in Zion a choice stone a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed, it says in 1 Peter 2. Okay? You see, all this chapter 3 from uh, Zechariah is just, you can read it and just like, it just opens up everything that is Jesus to us. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing to see. And lastly, like those returning to Jerusalem, we find ourselves under the vine and fig tree. Or if you're my home group, you find yourself under the little oak tree and the Walmart canopy. 
okay? And what does that mean? Well, that just means that we enjoy the blessings together. We can gather together and all of us say, uh, uh, I was chosen. I was washed. Uh, I still sin. I'll accuse myself with God and I'll plead Christ. Is that you? Yes, that's me too. I was chosen. I was washed. I plead Christ too. Is that you over there? Yes, that's me too. Let's have potato salad. And then we'll talk about it some more. And we live there under the vine and the fig tree. And Satan's slaves can't come there. I mean, they can't enter in. They might present themselves there. But they can't enter in because the last thing that they can do is say, I accuse myself with God and I plead Christ. They don't ever do that. They sit there and they just say, I accuse you, I accuse you, I accuse you. And if that's your life, plead with God. Plead with God that he'll deliver you from it. Because there's a great lot of joy sitting under the oak tree and the, and the Walmart canopy. And if you don't know that joy, get to a small group. But it's not just there. It's here. It's wherever God's people gather together. I can be reading something 600 years old, and I'm sitting under the tree with the guy. Right? This is the way God has set up his, his chosen people, his church, the people he has washed. So sit under the tree and sing, Give Me Jesus. I want to close by reading Matthew Henry about this because he, he just says a beautiful thing about this. Um, we reap precious benefits and privileges from our justification, more precious than the product of the vine or the fig tree. We repose in a sweet tranquility and are quiet from the fear of evil. What should terrify us when iniquity is taken away, when nothing can hurt us? We sit down under Christ's shadow with delight, and by it are sheltered from the scorching heat of the curse of the law. We live as Israel in the peaceable reign of Solomon. We ought to invite others to come to partake with us in the enjoyment of these privileges, to call every man his neighbor to come and sit with him for mutual converse under the vine and fig tree, and to share with him in the fruits he is surrounded with. Gospel grace, as far as it comes with power, makes men neighborly, and those who have the comfort of acquaintance with Christ themselves and communion with God through him will be, and this is old language, will be forward to court others to it. I like it's kind of, uh, what's that lady's name? Pride and Prejudice? It's Jane Austen-ish, right, right there. We'll be forward to court others to it, which means they'll just be inviting people aggressively to come and sit under the tree with them. And then he says, let us go unto the house of the Lord. <laughs> Isn't that sweet? That's just so sweet. Let's pray together. This is a prayer from John Calvin after his teachings on this passage. Grant, Almighty God, 
that as thou hast made us a royal priesthood in thy Son, that we may daily offer to thee spiritual sacrifices and be devoted to thee both in body and soul. O grant that we, being endued with thy power, may boldly fight against Satan and never doubt, but that thou wilt finally give us the victory. Though we may have to undergo many troubles and difficulties, and may not the contempt of the world frighten or dishearten us, but may we patiently bear all our reproaches until thou at length stretches forth thine hand to raise us up to that glory, the perfection of which now appears in our head and shall at last be seen clearly in all the members in the whole body, even when he shall come to gather us into that celestial kingdom which he has purchased for us by his own blood. Amen.